We are going to continue on in our series uh, that we've been going through called Enemies of the Soul, the Devil, the Flesh, and the World. Um, most of the way through this series. The video that you saw just a moment ago was kind of a recap uh, of the book that this series is based on. It's called Live No Lies, and it just kind of delves into what the scriptures teach us uh, about the lies and the deceptions of the devil, the desires of the flesh, those disordered desires that tend to drive us more than God's spirit drives us. And today we're going to dip into the concept of the world, because you hear this on Jesus's lips. He talks about the world and we go, well, what is that? You know, the, and it can be confusing. So we're going to, we is, is me, hopefully will help us make some sense of this and continue to equip us, like he said in the video, of live lives of freedom and peace in Christ, free from that, that constant struggle. I mean, we're always going to be tempted. We're always going to uh, be faced with challenges. But this series' goal is to equip us a little bit more. So hopefully it's been encouraging and a blessing to you. Uh, before we dive into this, talking about the concept of the world and hearing what Scripture has to teach us, I want to make a quick announcement reminding you that this coming, well, reminding you, this might be the first you've heard of it, so <laughs> announcing for the very first time that uh, this coming Wednesday, our congregation has been invited to an Ash Wednesday service. This, this coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, which kicks off the season of Lent, the 40 days that lead up to Easter Sunday. And we've been invited by our friends at Discovery Church right here in Livermore to an Ash Wednesday evening service at 6.30. And I'm going, and we're taking our teenagers there, and I'm inviting the whole congregation to join us just across town. You guys might go, well, what's, what's uh, Discovery Church? You might remember my friend Curtis. Give me a head nod if you've ever met my uh, outgoing, super chipper, everything is awesome friend, Curtis Lilly. He's a pastor at uh, Discovery Church uh, over across town. Our teenagers have been joining forces on Wednesday nights ever since the first of the year where we've been having this combined youth group meeting. Curtis and some of his leaders have been bringing their teens over, and uh, we've been having an awesome time. You might remember last month when we had our dinner and Devo Wednesday night meal and devotional gathering. Um, my daughter was in the hospital, and I had to call in for a pinch hitter. So Curtis, he brought the message for us that evening, and you guys got just a taste of his heart for the Lord, and just uh, what a great guy he is. But anyway... Um, Stop gushing about my friend Curtis. All that back to the invitation. This coming Wednesday night, we'd love it if you would join us at Discovery Church at 6.30 for an Ash Wednesday service. We're going to be worshiping. They do that thing where they, they rub the ashes on your head, and uh, it's going to be about 45 minutes long. So giving you guys that information, we'll send that out as an email invitation. That's this coming Wednesday. And then the following Wednesday, we will have our dinner and devotional Wednesday night gathering at 6.30 also, and that's going to be right here in the Family Life Center. So, the short version is this Wednesday, Ash, Ash Wednesday service at Discovery. Next week is Dinner and Devo right here. So I'm hoping that you guys will, will join us for that. If you have more, some more questions, you can talk to me about that. Evie has a question right now. Let's see where this goes. Devotional. Thank you for asking that. Sometimes we use jargon and we don't explain it. Uh, Devo is like a devotional, which is kind of like time of uh, singing some of our worship songs and hearing uh, a message from Scripture. Thank you for asking. Devo means devotional. Now you know. Uh, let's pray together. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Lord, that's kind of how I feel this morning. Honestly, I feel scattered. I feel, um, feel kind of empty. And maybe that's good. 
maybe you've, you've poured me out so that you can speak through me. Um, sometimes you have one of those days, God. And I, I just want to begin by saying, use me to speak your words of truth. Open our ears to hear truths from your word. Open our hearts and our hands so that our lives are clay in your hands. Mold us into the image of Jesus. Challenge us. Change us in any way that we need to be changed. But uh, we are your people. We're here because we love you. We believe in you. We trust you. And we're here because we want to hear a word from your spirit. So open our ears. Open our hearts. Change our lives. We are your people. We are your servants. Have your way in our lives. Use this time to prepare us and equip us. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. So the world, he's talked about these three enemies of the soul. The devil, we're like, yeah, we don't like the devil. The flesh, okay, we can relate to that. We have these urges, these desires. We know we need to tame them. We need to put them in their proper place. The world is, is a trickier one because when we say, when we hear scripture talk about do not be friends with the world, or in the scripture that Matt read for us earlier, earlier friendship with the world is enmity. It's hatred toward God, some translations say. We're going like, well, that doesn't sound right. Because didn't God love the world that he sent his son? And didn't Jesus not come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him? Yes, that is true. It can be confusing. When we're, when we're hearing scripture talk about the world is bad, stay away from the world, some people jump to the conclusion of uh, cloistering, sequestering, like just staying on your own, withdrawing from the world. And we're going to talk more about that specifically next week. But let's just try to understand what we're hearing when we hear this term, the world. It can be confusing. Kind of like we talked about when we said the flesh. And we hear scripture talk about taming the desires of the flesh or like conquering the flesh with the power of the spirit. We had to clarify that. Because the words that are used in the original language are just Greek words. And you can't tell whether it's the good kind or the bad kind or the neutral kind except by context. We said the flesh can refer to just our bodies, but it can also refer to the disordered desires that we have that we need to tame. And you're like, okay, well, one sounds just fine and one sounds like pretty serious. How can you tell the difference? Well, by listening, by context. The same is true of this concept, the world. I'll explain that in just a moment, but just as a way of illustrating this, it's kind of like that famous English sentence, buffalo, 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 buffalo. Are you guys with me? You know about this sentence? You're going, what just happened? Jacob, are you okay? You need to get your brain checked. Well, let me explain. If you say the word buffalo eight times in a row, you may not know this, but you have just said a complete English sentence. Buffalo, 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 buffalo. How? That's, that's weird. Help us understand it. All right. Uh, I've tried to explain this before and failed. We'll see how I do this morning. Okay. So buffalo in English can mean just the animal, right? So we have a buffalo up there. It can also mean the city in New York, like the region of Buffalo. You can tell that because it's a capital uh, B in the word buffalo. So I've illustrated this. These are, these are Buffalo Bills fans. So the, the buffalo are wearing Buffalo Bills t-shirts. And so these are Buffalo Buffalo. Get it? Buffalo from Buffalo. Okay? And these, these guys right here in the middle, they are the subject of our sentence. Moving on, Buffalo can also 
mean to intimidate or to bully, like buffaloing somebody, intimidating them. So in this case, with our eight-word buffalo sentence, the original buffalo, 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 and then there's this parenthetical aside, those which other buffalo, 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 are you with, have I lost all of you yet? I will, don't worry, hang with me, you guys are, you're so close. And then this is the end. They, in turn, buffalo or bully other buffalo who are from Buffalo. If you followed me with that, raise your hand because you deserve, you deserve recognition. Good, good. A lot of us. And if you didn't, uh, honestly, I don't understand it half of the time. But here it is again. Buffalo, buffalo. Buffalo, buffalo, buffalo. Buffalo, buffalo, buffalo. And you cannot get those three minutes of your life back. <laughs> but now you know. The reason that I'm bringing this up as we're talking about the concept of the world is it's because it's the same thing. Uh, same word. The world, uh, the Greek word for world is just cosmos. And you might recognize, oh, co like cosmology or the cosmos, the stars, the moons, the planets, the things that we, we know, the natural world around us, that's the word for the world. And so when we hear scripture talk about God created the world, God so loved the world, he's just talking about everything that we see, that the existence that we have. But then Jesus and other New Testament writers come along and they'll refer to the world as something that you have to watch out for, something that is opposed to God and God's will. And it, it's just merely described as the world. Uh, in Jesus's prayer in John chapter 17, just before he's about to go to the cross, he prays for his disciples, the, the people who have been following him around and listening to him. And he even like, projects into the future. He says, I pray for future disciples, those who will hear their message and those who will believe it. That's us. Side note, it's amazing that Jesus, before he went to the cross, before he was crucified, before he was separated from the Father, and that whole moment that happened on Good Friday, he was thinking about his followers. He was concerned about God's children. He was concerned about us. That is amazing. Anyway, in that prayer, Jesus says, I want you to protect them from the world. I, they are not from this world, just as I am not from this world. Well, that's kind of weird because like, they are from the world. We all live in the world. So we know from context that Jesus is talking about the world in this negative sense, that which is contrary to God. So we got a clue there. And like I said, in the passage from James 4 earlier, friendship with the world is hatred toward God. He who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Okay, so this is the world in that, that negative sense. What, what does it mean? What do we do with that? The main scripture I want us to look at today is from 1 John chapter 2. And this gives us a pretty clear definition of what the world is and kind of how it works and maybe the thing that we are supposed to be warned and cautioned about. And this will be up on your screen here. 1 John 2, starting in verse 15. John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. It seems that if we understand the world in that neutral creation sense, then this passage is, seems a little off, right? If we understand John to be talking about that thing that we should be concerned about, the thing that pulls us away from God, then it gives us some clues of what is going on here. 
We learn it from this passage that the world is contrasted with the will of God. In verse 17, they're, they're opposites. They cannot exist together. He says, if you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. You can't love both of them at the same time. Kind of reminds us of Jesus' words about serving God and serving money. You can't serve two masters because you know, hate the one, despise the other. You can't have them both. Kind of the same way with following God and this concept of the world that we hear about. And he tells us the components of the world include the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Well, that reminds us about what we heard in Scripture about the flesh and how it can draw us away from God, how we can say yes to the desires that we should be saying no to, and then we're out of control, then we're lost, then we're far from God. Let me give you a quick recap of what we said last week about how the strategy of the enemies of the soul work. Uh, the lies of the devil, I think I have this up here too. Dick, did I, did I write this down for us to see? Hope so. Maybe not. Nope. Uh, nope, maybe I didn't. All right, forget it. It's not Dick's fault. The lies of the devil then lead to disordered desires. The devil starts to whisper lies and you start to believe them because you want to believe them. You already have these desires and you give in to them. And then this is when the world comes in. Those desires are normalized in a sinful society. So it's not just that you believe the lies, the untruths of the devil. It's not just that you allow your desires to become disordered in your own life. Here's what happens. This is kind of the final component of how this works. Those ungodly beliefs and desires and actions and habits become celebrated and normalized in society around us. That is kind of a working understanding of the world, as Scripture talks about it. I gave this example a week ago or a couple weeks ago. Let's say uh, I'm, I'm believing a lie and I'm starting to have this idea in my head. You know what I should do? I should leave my wife for a younger woman. That sounds good. You know, my wife and I are fighting. I want to do it anyway. It's playing to a disordered desire in my life, but I think I'm going to do it. I'm thinking about it. So let's say I come to this church and I ask all of you, do you think I should leave my wife for a younger woman? Val, is that something that I should do? Val says no. Okay, let, let, me, let me try the left side because I'm not getting a lot of support over here. Roger and Cynthia, should I leave Lisa for a younger woman? They say no, too. I would guess that all of you in this room, if I went one by one and asked you, you would say no. Okay? And good, thank you for, for holding me accountable to, to my commitment to my wife. But what I might do is say, ah, you guys aren't giving me the answer I'm looking for. I'm going to ask these people over here. Maybe they say no, so I'll ask these people over here. Maybe I can't find people in Livermore who want to get on board with this plan, this desire that I have. So I go online and I look for a community. Do you think I'm going to find people who will give a different answer in this situation or in any number of other situations? You can find people who will affirm the things that you want to do anyway. That according to scripture are disordered desires. You can get people to say, yeah, you should, and you shouldn't feel bad about it. You got to do you. Jacob, if this relationship's run its course, what can you do? You got to be true to yourself, follow your heart. Now I'm going, ah, okay. That's the community that I'm going to be listening to. I like what those voices are telling me. That's the world. That's how the world works. You can go to the slide now, Dick. John Mark Comer from the book Live No Lies 
gives a definition of the world, which I think is helpful. It's kind of long. You don't have to remember all of this. But he says the world, the way the scripture talks about it, is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. Ooh, that's a lot. It's a lot to remember. But it's something that becomes normalized in society. Here's the tricky part. You often don't realize that it's happened. Here's an example that he gives. That I, I, when I read this, I could really relate to this because I lived through this and this was a struggle for me as well. This example won't step on anybody's toes. It's kind of fun and lighthearted, but stay tuned. Tuck your toes in. Uh, it's coming. In 1999, there was this website that was invented called Napster. Give me a little head nod if you remember Napster. Napster changed the way that music was done. I was a freshman in college when Napster came out. Someone was like, you should get on this website. I said, what is it? What does it do? You can download any song you want for free. You can download, again, download. That's just a new concept for me in 1999. But electronic music files, you could download entire album. You could download movies and TV shows just by clicking this thing. And it was completely free. At the time, uh, it was also stealing, <laughs> right? If you have music, if you now own music that you didn't pay for, that was produced by somebody, that was copyrighted and owned by someone else, and you now have it, and you didn't pay for it, you stole it, right? College students didn't think so. We were like, no, 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 it's not stealing, it's file sharing, right? <laughs> and it was new, it was a new technology, it was not regulated very well at the time. So we went crazy and we downloaded a ton of music and it was awesome. There were lawsuits involved to clarify, uh, not with me, they didn't sue <laughs> Jacob in his dorm, but the recording uh, artist industry of America, they said, hey, this is taking money away from the artist. This is stealing. So then they shut down Napster and the, the, there's more to that story. But basically what they said is we all kind of suspected it was stealing. Well, it is stealing. You could still do it. A lot of people did it and got away with it, but now it became kind of this ethical gray area. Is it right or is it wrong? So, uh, before Napster, in this particular illustration and in this world, not stealing, everybody knew it was right. The right thing to do, don't steal. Don't take something that you didn't pay for. And stealing was wrong. But in this new gray area, people and college students, and even Jacob said, it's not exactly stealing. It's sort of, a, you know, kind of, we can still do it. We want to do it and we want to feel good about it. So we're not going to call it stealing and we're all just going to agree. We'll look the other way. We'll not talk about whether or not it's stealing. So it changed. Stealing went from being wrong and something everybody knew you don't do to now it was okay. It was fine if you decide you want to do this, but that's not where it stopped. Here's an extra layer to this strange puzzle. This is how the world works. Uh, John Mark gives this example, and I knew a guy like this too. He said, while everybody around me was stealing music, file sharing, burning CDs, having the time of their life, he decided, I don't want to do this because I think it's wrong. I think it cheats the artists. I still want to pay them for what they're doing. I want to do the right thing, so I'm not going to participate. And how do you think that went over with his group of friends? When they're like, hey, you want this CD? Hey, I can download this for you. And he goes like, no, I'm not going to do it because it's wrong. Did they go, oh man, we respect that, that's cool. No, he became the bad guy 
He was the buzzkill. He was the guy at the party that was not invited to the next party because he was saying, what you're doing is wrong. I'm not throwing stones, but I'm not going to do it. They were like, well, you're making us feel bad about what we're doing. You are judging us. Therefore, you not stealing is not just not right. It is now wrong. So these things completely switched places. Does anybody remember this? Do you, did you remember living through this? This example really hits home for me. It was this kind of ethical thing that I didn't stress a whole lot about. But it's an example of how something went from like, this is clearly right and this is clearly wrong to like, now the rules are different. But they aren't. But because everybody wanted them to be, they found the community that said, nope, stealing is fine. Judging people for stealing is wrong. This is, like I said, kind of a, kind of a fun, not step on your toes sort of example. But there, there are more examples of how this is at work in the world. The things that people want to do anyway, and they'll go along with, so they'll redefine right and wrong in ways that we may not have even noticed. There's a section in the book where he lists several, and I'm just going to read this for you. He says, lust has become redefined as love. Marriage not as a covenant of lifelong fidelity, but a contract for personal, personal fulfillment. Divorce is framed as an act of courage and authenticity rather than a breaking of vows. He says the objectification of women sexually through porn has been framed as female empowerment. Greed as responsibility to shareholders. Racism as a past issue. Abortion and infanticide are called reproductive justice. quiet, stepping on some toes. This may sound like I'm advocating for a particular political viewpoint. You might hear this and go like, ah, those sound like some liberal values to me, Jacob. Where are you, where are you trying to lead us? Or you might hear that and say, no, this sounds like a conservative social position. You probably want to see my cards at this point. Where are you taking us? What are you advocating for? Well, first of all, if that's what's going through your mind, I think that's a sign of the world at work, the suspicion that we have of one another, this desire, this need for us to know which side of the room, which side of the line, which side of the issue do you stand on? I think we've been conditioned to think like that. That's the world at work. That's just one observation. Second thing I'll point out if you're thinking that way is that liberals and conservatives on both sides side with the thought patterns and the justifications of the world at the expense at following Jesus. This happens all the time. It's happened throughout history. Bill reminded us. Know your history. Tim Keller lists eight things that made Christians stand out when Christianity was new. In the first century, uh, second and third century. These are things that Christians were known for in the Roman world. The Roman world was like, hey, you can do whatever you want. Uh, but Christians said there's certain things we're not going to do or there's certain things we are going to do because of our identity in Christ. Because we're Christians, we're going to do this. We're not going to do this. Let me read you Tim Keller's list. Just take a listen. He says Christians in the early church did not go to blood sports. They didn't go to the arena and watch gladiators kill each other. Everybody did that. It was fun. It was a form of entertainment. They're like, no, 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 no. That's not the way of Christ. Christians also did not serve in the military, especially in the first three centuries of Christianity. You have these church fathers writing about Christ was a pacifist. There's no justification for serving in the military. So they refrained from that in the early days. 
Christians were against abortion and infanticide. I mentioned this last week. It was a common practice. If you had a child you didn't want, to just leave it out in the wilderness. Say, well, we'll do it better next time. Christians had a reputation for going and finding them. Because a lot of times, I've said this before, but this is worth knowing. People would go and find these babies that were left out to die, and they would raise them in slavery. They would become sex slaves. They would become just sold as property. Christians said, let's get there first. Let's get these babies. Let's raise them. Let's love them. Let's give them a home. Let's say your life is important. That's something Christians did that was weird, and it stood out, and it made them peculiar. Another thing Christians did that was not common in the ancient Roman world was empowering women. Women did not have voices. Women were not allowed to testify in court because women were less than men. Their opinions didn't matter. Christians said, that's not the way of Christ. Christians were against sex outside of marriage, and they were also against same-sex practices, which were very common and accepted in ancient Roman society. Christians had this new, strange, peculiar sexual ethic that stood out in the ancient world. Christians were radically for the poor. Christians were for mixed races and classes. And Christians believed that Christ is the only way to salvation. These were the ways that Christians believed and practiced and lived that the world around them said, that is so strange. Why don't you just do what the rest of us are doing? Now here, the reason we talk about this list, because I want you to look at this and think about modern political positions. A liberal person might look at this list and go, yeah, amen, to about half of that, right? Conservative person might look at the same list and go, yeah, amen, but to the other half. And then the rest of it, no, that's, that's not really where I'm at. And you could add radical forgiveness to this list, and nobody would amen this. That's how Christians lived. That's the lifestyle that Christians modeled in the early church. The point here is the influence of the world is far-reaching, and it often goes undetected. And it's what solidifies the lies of the devil, the desires of the flesh, and then normalizes them in a society whose highest value is something other than the will of God. So, we have some knowledge. We've equipped ourselves. We've, we've heard this. We said, okay, this is how the world works. What do we do with this influence that existed then, that exists now? How do we equip ourselves to resist it? How do you keep from being buffaloed into going along with the vocal majority just because they're the loudest voice? Well, go back to the example that I gave a little bit earlier when I said, you know what? Doggone it, I'm going to leave my wife for a younger woman. Who were the people in my life that said, nope, that's not a good idea? You know, the church. The people who say, that, that, that's just a bad idea. That's not who you are. That's not the value that you've committed to, that you have signed on to. Your people are going to say, like, no, 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 let's not do that. That's kind of the answer to the question. That's sort of the antidote to the influence of the world is the church. And you might hear that and go, that's disappointing, Jacob, because that sounds like a Sunday school answer. What are we supposed to do? Read your Bible, pray more, go to church. Well, we're already at church. Still seems like a struggle. Still seems like an issue. And it is. And like I said, we'll talk more about this next week. But remember, as we've been going along, we've been saying that each of these spiritual enemies, there's an antidote to it and a reason why this works. We said the antidote to the lies of the devil are the truths 
of Scripture. If you're grounded in Scripture the way that Christ was, then you can resist the devil. You'll be able to tell truth from falsehood. The antidote to the disorders, the disordered desires of the flesh that we have, we said, are the spiritual disciplines, the intentional habits we make to connect with God. And last couple of weeks, we've been highlighting fasting and confession. We practiced some confession last week. Hopefully this week, you were brave enough to open your mouth to somebody you trust and say, I'm not perfect. Sorry. <laughs> I hope you forgive me. Or we're skipping meals. Or we're, we're taking control of these disordered desires and we're just being a little more intentional about how we're living our lives. The antidote to the devil is uh, scripture and times of prayer. The antidote to the disordered desires of the flesh are the spiritual disciplines. The antidote to the influence of the world is the church. The Christian communities that we can find ourselves in. And when I say the church, I don't just mean going to church, because here we are in church. It's, it's an hour, hour and a half out of our week. It's one component of it. It's an important component, but I think it's so much more than that. When I say the church, I mean the Christians in your school, the people who believe the same things that you believe that you can and should be connected with. I mean the Christians who are in your household, and they may be people that you worship next to, but do you go home and confess your sins to one another? Do you ask for forgiveness? Do you ask for advice? Do you give people permission to critique your choices and to kind of filter your life through the way of Jesus Christ? If I'm honest, Lisa and I don't do that as much as we should. We do it. We're trying to instill it into our kids, but mm, that's one of those things that can slip off the radar, and I'm guessing it could be for you as well. But your household is a great source of Christian community that will help you resist the influence of the world. When I say church, I mean Christian authors and teachers and artists and musicians. Those are people who are part of the voice of the church. They're worth tuning into and listening to. When I say the church, I mean Christians throughout history, thinkers and theologians and people whose works have been recorded and valued and practices that we can still do today. I mean the Christians that you worship alongside. Okay, yeah, not not, not the people who are in this room. Take a quick look around. Just look around and say, all right, these are the people in my church. Say that out loud. These are the people in my church. These are the people I worship with. These are people who can help me. We can encourage each other in faith, and we should encourage each other in faith. This is one gathering. The church try to, tries to organize other gatherings, other opportunities for you to be in relationship and be in community with other like-minded believers who are trying to say, hey, no, we're not perfect, but we're trying to follow Christ. And the more that we understand what that is, the more that we open up the Word and follow Jesus together, the less we will be tricked, the less we will be influenced and drawn away by the world. On the back of your order of worship this morning, uh, I printed some upcoming gatherings. Upcoming gatherings at which you can connect with other Christians. Longest title in the history of flyers. But it lists Ash Wednesday. It lists some Bible studies. Some are weekly. Uh, some are teen-specific. But take a look at this. This is, this is just what the church has kind of come up with and organized. But this is the tip of the iceberg. Some of the best gatherings that Christians have are the impromptu ones that you create for yourselves. When you connect with someone at dinner in Devo and say, you know what, I like that person. They're genuine. They seem to care. Maybe they've been following Christ longer than I have. Maybe there's some wisdom that they could offer. That's when you say, all right, let's get together. Let's have coffee. 
Let's encourage each other in faith. Let's ask the question, how can I pray for you throughout this week? Let's get each other's numbers and text each other. That's the stuff that the church does not organize, but we give you permission to do. Connect with one another. Create as many gatherings of the church as you can, as you are able to. Two things, and then I'll stop talking. One, I've said this before, but it, it bears repeating. The church in the first century, like I said, was weird and was strange, and people, it's amazing that the church gathered any followers of Jesus at all. It seems like it was dangerous to follow Jesus in the first century. You stood out. You could easily be ostracized from society. There were times in its history where there was persecution of followers of Jesus. It was not a good scene. you got to scratch your head then and wonder, why did it grow so much? Historian Larry Hurtado says this, by the year 100 AD, right around the time the, most of the writings of the, of the scriptures that we have were done being written, there were maybe 10,000 Christians in the world. 10,000 Christians. A hundred years later, by the year 200 AD, there were 200,000 Christians. It jumped quite a bit. It was still hard to be a Christian, but the word spread. People became followers of Jesus. And again, remember with the mixed races and classes thing? In the ancient world, it was common to just stay within your tribe. You know, if you were from this region, these were your local gods. If you were from here, these were the people that you worship with. This was your understanding of God. Christ was for everybody. Christ remains for everybody. It broke down geographical barriers, racial, ethnic barriers, and still should today. By the year 300 AD, there were 6 million Christians. How did it grow when it was so suspect and so strange and such an outlier and so different than the rest of society? There's a few answers I could give to that. The number one, I would say, is the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit wants to do. The church was going to be the church whether anybody tried to stop it. I think the church was attractive to people who had been influenced by the world for so long. It became this alternative option of saying, like, you know what? I'm, I'm tired of trying to find people who will affirm me in my desire to leave my wife because I think it'll make me happy. I'm glad that there's people who are saying, like, no, 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 no. You may not want to hear this, and you may be mad if I tell you this, but this is the way, and this is not the way. Or they need that. They want people who genuinely care. And I think that's what the church was. Even though it was dangerous, it was like, hey, we're your family and we're here for you. And when the church of today acts like that, when the church is at its best, it's an amazing thing. And lives are transformed. And people start walking a, a straighter path and relationships are restored. I think this is what Jesus was praying for in John 17. This is what Jesus was hoping for. That's the vision that I want to catch and I want to lean into. But it starts with understanding that there's this huge influence of the world that we don't recognize a lot of the time. But the church grew. The church will continue to grow. God's doing something. The last thing I'll mention, and then we'll, uh, we'll close with a prayer that is also a song. I want to just make a quick comment about this revival uh, in Wilmore, Kentucky. Give me a, a head nod if you've seen this. This is national news. There's a chapel service at a university down in Kentucky. And uh, it's just a normal student chapel service. And uh, somebody delivered a message and they sang a few songs. And God's Spirit was at work. And it moved 
and people didn't leave. Normally we get up and we go, and these, these students were like, no, let's keep praying. It was a group of 30 students or something like that, and they, they just continued to pray. They just felt the presence of the Lord was, was thick in that place, and so they kept praying, and they kept worshiping, and then people started coming back, and then they kept praying, and they kept worshiping, and this is, they're on like day eight, seven or eight or something like that. You can go online like, and look for 10. Oh my goodness, I gotta update my files. This is like a live stream. Uh, word got out, and then people started flocking to this campus. And it wasn't just in one building, it wasn't just in one space. The university started opening up other facilities where people could gather and worship. You have to ask that question too. What, what was it? It wasn't like the fanciest, most excited, exciting worship service ever. It wasn't the most charismatic speaker that you could come up with. It was just people seeking God, and God saying, I'm right here. Another John Mark, my friend John Mark Hicks, uh, put it like this. I thought this extended quote would be worth sharing in response to what's going on in Kentucky this week. He says, an authentic encounter with the loving and holy God also calls us into the life of God. We're invited to participate in the communion of triune God where there is shalom. Many seek peace and security in other things, including sex, drugs, consumerism, alcohol, nationalism, among many other things. He says, the high levels of anxiety in Western culture create a deep need for encounter with transcendence. A worshiping assembly can be an occasion for such an encounter. This, in part, what many see in the work of God at Asbury, at this, at this college in Kentucky, uh, an anxious generation seeking peace in God's love. Simply put, maybe people are just ready for the truth, for a simpler and more honest way of living. I want to invite you to stand with me now. We're going to end by singing a prayer together. It's a simple song. I will lead it with my simple voice, but we'll put the lyrics up here on the screen. It's a prayer for revival. We sometimes launch our services with this song. It's very praiseworthy. God is the king. We praise you, O oh God. But it's a prayer requesting, asking God to restore us and revive us. And that's how I want us to close out this morning. Then Phil's going to come up and share some of the ways we can pray for each other this week. Um, but pray this prayer along with me as a prayer. We praise thee, O God, for the Son of thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. We praise thee, O God, for thy spirit of light, who has shown us our Savior and scattered our night. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. All glory and praise to the Lamb that was slain, who has borne all our sins and has cleansed every stain. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. All glory and praise 
to the God of all grace, who has bought us and sought us and guided our ways. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. Revive us again. Fill each heart with thy love. May each soul be rekindled with fire from above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. 